Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, we got a great episode today. I'll be interviewing D. Watkins, uh, an art author from Baltimore that I highly respect. He has a new book out, We Speak for Ourselves, and he's traveling around the country promoting that book. In addition, I'll have a share some thoughts on anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and Ilhan Omar. But before I get to the rest of the show, I wanted to touch on a series of events, because right after the mass shooting at the synagogue in San Diego, there was another mass shooting in Baltimore. And it happened to be right along the Edmondson Avenue corridor where eight people were shot at a cookout, one of them fatally. This happens to be the same area where the young Taylor Hayes was shot and killed. And in a recent piece after that killing, I described the history of redlining and marginalization of that period that continues through this day. So I encourage you to look up Taylor Hayes and the red lines of Baltimore because it's still relevant. But there's a lot to hear in today's show. So without further ado, let's get it. Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with uh, D. Watkins. Uh, D. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. And uh, D. You know, uh, for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with your work, uh, I consider you one of the most important authors and also mentors coming out of Baltimore right now. Um, I kind of think of you as a big brother of an, a literary movement and artistic movement coming out of Baltimore that's very much connected to the Baltimore community. Um, you know, connected with Kandwani Fidel, the photographer Devin Allen, uh, as well as I think Shannon Wallace, uh, and you know other people writing books or about to write books, including Erica Bridgeford from Ceasefire and uh, Lawrence Brown from uh, Morgan State University. Uh, you're a literary professor at University of Baltimore, but uh, I think it's important for people not familiar with your work to understand your journey a little bit and. I've gotten most of my understanding from your autobiography, The Cook-Up, A Crack Rock Memoir. Do you mind uh, just framing this conversation by talking about your journey, uh, how you got to where you are, you know, where you are and where you think you're headed? Yeah, um, you know, I'm from East Baltimore. came up kind of rough, um, but, you know, I've had a beautiful family, still have a beautiful family. Um it was the '90s, so it was it was the crack era, and um, you know, one of my my biggest role models, and 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 you know, my biggest role model and the person I followed was my older brother, and he was gunned down before I was supposed to go to college. So he um was the one who put me on that path, and I lived in his shadow a lot. So I, I tried to keep his you know his dream alive and and go to school, and culture shock kind of took me out of it, but I eventually made it back to school. Um, after going through a series of things that a lot of street kids go through. And, and that journey is when I fell in love with reading and I fell in love with writing, and that has been the most transformative part of my life. Um, when I was coming up, the books that were given to my friends and I weren't really, didn't really touch on our experiences or highlight our experiences. They just made us, made us feel like we weren't part of, the American story, when in our actuality, we were the most, one of the most important parts of this story. So um, that, you know, challenged me to read more and 
Um, I got into journalism and started reading a lot of articles, and I felt like people from my neighborhood were still left out. So, you know, I, I, I started telling those stories, and my career took off from there. Um, I'm very, very fortunate. was lucky enough to sell two books early in my career. They both went on to become New York Times bestsellers. My third one's coming out next week. And um, beyond all of that, the most important work that I do is, like you said, you know, I try to be a brother and a friend to other writers. And I mentor a lot of young kids and let them know that the street life is not the place you want to go based on my own firsthand experiences. Um, I've been through a whole world of, of, of trouble and danger, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So um, I, I try to be an advocate in that way while promoting literacy, while creating that content that young people can get excited about reading and um, sharing. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's not always a, a pretty work, but, you know, it's, it's, it's rewarding and, and, and I'm happy I get to do it and I, I plan on doing it for the rest of my life. And for people who uh, like to read, I definitely recommend uh, the book I mentioned, uh, The Cook-Up, Your Autobiography. And I, I think uh, you are a very... Uh, you have a very interesting perspective on both, you know, East Baltimore and Dunbar High School, where you were very successful in a lot of different roles, and then going to Loyola, Loyola University, Maryland, which is really not that far away geographically, but like you say, culturally worlds away. Um, and uh, so I think understanding how far apart yet close together those two Baltimores are, uh, I thought your perspective was uh, very in, uh, insightful. And one of the things that I really appreciate that you're doing now, in addition, like I said, you're teaching at University of Baltimore, but I also notice you're going back into the city schools and bringing your books and really engaging students. Can you talk about uh, your experience in the city schools working on issues around literacy? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've made um, close to 300 or maybe even over 300 stops at schools and colleges and jails around the country but um a lot of those stops have been in baltimore city public schools you know instead of when i was coming up my friends and i we didn't we didn't read and as a result you know that led, that led to us not being able to develop into good critical thinkers um and you can't think critically then you know you're going to live your life making bad decisions so um i don't want students to make that bad decisions and when i found out that my book was doing so well and the schools, I was like, yo, I need to be in the schools and I need to be talking to these kids. They need to meet an author. And when teachers start, and around the same time, it's crazy how the universe works because teachers started reaching out to me and they wanted to know, like, yo, what's up? You know, would you would you come to my school? You know, I had some copies of your book. But, um, you know, we had like 30, 40 copies and now we only got like 10 left. Like students are taking them home and they're stealing them. And they, you know, they I never seen anything like this before. And I'm just fortunate you know, I don't want kids stealing, but I'm fortunate enough that they connect them with the work. So I decided to partner up with some foundations and raise some of my own money and spend some of my own money to make sure that um, thousands of kids can actually get my books and be able to keep them and take them home and have them. Um, I'm actually gearing up right now to do a thousand book giveaway in Baltimore. So it's just, um, you know, it's, 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 I'm lucky, man. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I, that I get to do this stuff. And, you know, I also found that very compelling. At the same time, uh, our political leadership, the mayor, had this kickback scheme with the University of Maryland where she was getting money supposedly for giving, like, these cartoon Healthy Holly books to the city schools. But that was just a gimmick, right, to get money. And meanwhile, you were, you know, spending kind of your own capital with your publisher to get your books at your expense into the schools. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a shame that... Um... You know, it's a shame that 
that, you know, he, she understands, she knows the problems that our city faces, but um, she chose that, used that opportunity to be able to pat her own pocket. And when she got confronted with it, she decided to step away. Well, they're saying she's sick right now. I don't know. But what I do know is, um, you know, I try not to let stuff like that deter me or stop me from doing what's right. Because, you know, that money could have went to people like Devin Allen. It could have went to people like Kondwani Fidel. It could have went to people like me who actually go inside of these schools. Um, we actually visit the kids and we, and we love them and we're a part of them. And we don't see them as them. We see them as us. Like, we're one. So um, the fact that you got good people out here doing the work, and when it's time for us to try to get some funding or try to figure something out, we, you know, we always get sent to the back of the bus. But, you know, when these politicians get, a, you know, the first chance or opportunity to get a steal, they just do it. And they only answer, I'm not the only one stealing. Everybody was. Well, just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. And you mentioned some of the, the literary figures out of Baltimore right now that I did. Do you think that's fair to say that there's uh, an important literary and artistic movement connected to a lot of the communities, particularly in East and West Baltimore right now? Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to say about that? Yeah, I think I think that I think the movement I think this movement has been going on for a while, but social media has allowed a lot of us to a connect and b to get our workout. I also think. Um, the difference between our generation and the people before us is like, like a lot of other successful writers in Baltimore, they don't really reach back into the city. They're not really trying to like help groom the career of other writers or they never really tried to like help show us the way or how to get published or how to get an agent or even take our phone calls. So I think one thing that's different about us is that we reaching out, we reaching out to each other. We supporting each other working. We showing, we showing like real love because we believe in each other and, we all feel like we can experience success. So I think that kind of sets us apart from like some of the older um, writers in the city who's had some success in Baltimore. You're coming out with a new book. Like you said, uh, it's called We Speak for Ourselves, right? Do you want to talk about? We Speak for Ourselves is a, um, it's an essay collection, but the essays are connected. And it's about failed movements and how those movements fail because of false, fake, um, or unauthentic um, representation. You got a lot of people trying to talk about the people of Baltimore and what the people of Baltimore need, but they're not actually engaging with the people. They just, they, 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 they critiquing us from a drone-like perspective and then using those stories to elevate themselves, but they're not really trying to elevate people. And, um, you know, I'm, you know, the quote Dr. Stuart, I'm just going to say that, you know, we don't need a voice for the voiceless. You can just pass the mic. And uh, I, I, one of my close friends, Erica Bridgeford, who's uh, one of the founding members of Baltimore Ceasefire, I understand uh, she's... Yeah, I mentioned, I, mentioned, I, mentioned her, I mentioned her in the book. She's a hero of mine. And, you know, I appreciate that. You, you and I had a conversation early on when I was became a, an ambassador for the Baltimore Ceasefire about uh, the work that we were doing, and I was trying to loop you in. And you had a very sincere response, which was that, you know, everyone has so much projects on, you didn't want to overcommit. Uh, but I appreciate, you know what I mean you reaching out and supporting and including her in your work. And I think that is real support. Yeah, she, she's a, she's a, she's a hero of mine. So, um, it's like, it's, it's mandatory. Um, the work that she does is important and, and valuable work. And I think that's kind of, when you're looking at change, that's what change looks like. Um, you know, a person like Devin is somewhere giving away cameras you know, teaching kids the power of art and, you know, photography while I'm out here in schools and giving away books and teaching literacy while Eric is out doing community healing and 
introducing the spiritual elements in places where, um, you know, people have been gunned down. So it's like, you know, if we cross paths or if we don't cross paths, we are like touching people and trying to help people and trying to elevate and, and do our best and play our role in making sure people grow. And that's kind of, that's what it's about. Like, um, that's, that's the real work. I think sometimes people think that, you know, you need to be in a podium giving a speech in front of a million people to make a difference, or you need to have a million social media followers to make a difference. And that's not really the case. It's about what are you doing with actual people? What are you doing with people? And you, uh, I know you're on a uh, speaking tour related to this book right now. You're coming to Washington, D.C., where we're on the air with WPFW. You're going to be in New York City. W- what do you think the value or the importance of these voices that you're highlighting uh, in, in these other communities, especially where they're centers of power, both political and cultural power? Um, I'm telling American stories from real America. A lot of times, you know, we don't really get a chance to be American. Um you know, we, we get treated like second-class citizens, you know, we don't, and the crazy thing about it is that, is that so many black people have so much in common with so many white people and so many Asian people and so many brown people, but yet, um, you know, through segregation and, and, and housing and, you know, structural racism, we don't even get a chance to share stories that could allow us to love each other more and connect more and rally together more. And, the people who win off of that type of mentality are the people who are in that top 1%. They're winning right now because they have us fighting against each other and having these big ideological differences with each other, and they just making money off of everybody. <laughs> they making money off of everyone. So we out here, you know, not showing love to each other, and they cashing checks. And, um, you know, we, uh, we just happen to be talking on April 19th, which is the four-year anniversary of the death of Freddie Gray. Um, you were on a podcast about that uh, undisclosed about the the death of Freddie Gray, and I I remember one thing that you said that really resonated with me is that you know people who had anything to say about Freddie Gray where were they when uh, you know he needed help with getting a job or working on his resume and things like that, and we also know that he's someone that suffered with lead poisoning. Do you have any uh, sort of thoughts on, on where we are and what work needs to be done? through the lens of this four-year anniversary of Freddie Gray's death? So if we're going to truly honor Freddie Gray, we need to honor the fact that he died from a shallow diving accident. A police officer could throw him into a van hit first. Um, we, need to come up, we need to be upfront and honest about the fact that a flawed system allowed those officers to not be held accountable. We also need to be upfront about the fact that um, – when you pick up a person to take them to jail, you know, we're not even going to speak on the fact that they didn't have a reason to lock him up. He was clean. But when you pick up a person to take him to jail, we need to, you know, understand that it is not okay for him to not, you know, to die on a trip. So it's like we still struggle. People still struggling saying that. And that's what I say when I talk about, you know, you can be from like the same class. But because you have, like, a different social context, you're at war with somebody who's having the same fights as you. People so at war with us that they can't even acknowledge that. You got people that can't even, politicians and, and police officers who can't even, can't even acknowledge that. They keep trying to say it was just a mistake. And I'm like, yo, you don't mis- make a mistake and kill somebody. You just don't. It just don't work like that. You know, you, you are, you're in public service. You work for people. Until, the, it, until we can eat, we, we, until we, we, 
get to the point where we can just acknowledge the simple stuff, then it's like we can't even really have that conversation. So, um, so I think um, just they, they're using the same problems to try to cure things um, that hasn't worked for a long time. Hiring more cops, um, a brand new commissioner. You know, um, these things don't work until we figure out a way to effectively, uh, aggressively attack systemic poverty. Then we're going to continue to see the same things over and over again. And that's the world we live in. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if uh, how much you want to speak on this, but when you and I first met, I was working at uh, Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, and you grew up in East Baltimore, kind of more or less in the shadow of that institution. Um, and we know right now Hopkins is uh, trying to organize a private police force. Do you have anything that, that you want to say, kind of your experience with Hopkins or what you would like to see, the interaction between East Baltimore and Johns Hopkins? So it's crazy, like, um, you know, I always got mixed feelings because Hopkins has been a negative and a positive to the community in so many different ways. So it's like, it's complex. Like, people act like it's a simple answer, and it's really not. Um, did they displace thousands of people? Absolutely. Um, that my mother and everybody else's mother and grandmother and great-grandmother have jobs there coming up? Yes, they did. You need to be employed. Did they get fair wages? A lot of times, no, they didn't. Um, so, you know, there's like, you know, I taught there. So like, you know, there was like all types of, um, scandals with what happened with, you know, testing black people and black people not want to go there, even though the whole origin of the hospital was about taking care of everybody. So it's like, it's, 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 it's a real big, it's a mixed bag. And then on the idea of the private police force, it's like, yo, them police officers are probably going to kill somebody. Um, but then the other side of the and which of- and we did just see that I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we did just see that in New Haven, the Yale police force um, was part of an incident where a young woman in New Haven was shot. And I think that you're right. It's it's predictable. The same thing will happen in East Baltimore eventually. Yeah, you know, so it, it's just by proximity, it's going to happen. So the cra- but the crazy thing is like it's like we can fight that, but then when you look at the other side of the spectrum, University of Baltimore has police, Coppin has police, Morgan has police. Um, Hopkins like is like one of the only um, institutions in that area that don't have their own police department. So it's like you know I don't I don't really you know I'm not a fan of the of a new police force. I'm not a fan of it. But the bigger thing is this: they have the money to be able to buy the votes to get that. So we know what's going to happen. What we need to be focusing on right now mm-hmm. is who they are going to be hiring for those positions. Are you going to be getting the worst cops? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Who was so bad they got kicked off the police force. You're going to be getting the worst cops that were so bad that they couldn't join the police force. Who are you going to hire and what kind of power are they going to have? And what kind of connection are you going to make them have with that community? Because the bills are already passed and, you know, they got the money to make things disappear. So it's going to be a tricky situation. Um, a lot of politicians voted for them. Um, some real politicians were brave and they voted against it. A lot of them were fake and phony and they just rode with it. So, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know somebody's going to get hurt and they're going to have blood on their hands. Hmm. Well, before I let you go, uh, I definitely, you know, we're here promoting uh, your new book, We Speak for Ourselves. Uh, I'm with the Watkins. And I also want, encourage people to find your autobiography, The Cookup, which I thought was a very important read. Uh, but I'd like to hear any other literary artistic recommendations you have for my audience that they might not have been exposed to before. Recommendations? Yeah. 
Oh yeah, definitely read All Day by Lisa Jesse Peterson. Definitely read um, Nine Years Under by Sheree Booker. Definitely read She Would Be King by What You Two More. Um, you should read um, Hummingbirds in the Trenches by Cordoni Fidel. You should read both of the poetry books by Tart Corey, Oxygen, Two Parts Oxygen, and Black Seed. Um, definitely read A Beautiful Ghetto and Looking for Photos by Devin Allen. And definitely just support your local artists and your local bookstores because we out here putting work in and, um, you know, we need love too. And, and, and we, we, we in and around the community. So, you know, we here. And I also want if people uh, like t- uh, television more than books, then definitely check out on BET. There was an episode of Finding Justice that had uh, Dr. Lawrence Brown from Morgan State talking about lead poisoning in Baltimore that I found was devastating and very compelling about a- another area of work that needs to be done. Yep, yep, that's definitely, yeah, that was a good episode. You know, Doc, doc well, really put it down. Well, uh, D, anything else you want to say while we you have the airwaves in uh, Washington, D.C.? Yeah, you know, um, like the great Dr. Maya Angelou said, when you get, get, when you learn, teach. You know, um, hopefully I can make it to D.C. Well, I'm going to be in D.C. Hopefully you can make it out to the event, um, but I'll be a bunch of other places, too. You can find me at D. Watkins World on all social media. All right, so we're here with D. Watkins. You can find him on D. Watkins World. Definitely check out his new book, We Speak for Ourselves. Well, thanks so much for being with us, D. Thank you. Have a blessing. All right, see you soon. we saw another mass shooting at a synagogue in California. Now, similar to the recent attacks at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and as well as mass shooting of Muslims at prayer in New Zealand, this most recent attack had its roots in white supremacy. And indeed, it seems that the attacker in California had also undertaken an arson attack at a California mosque previously. Now, nevertheless, Numerous people on the right, including Megan McCain, have taken this as an opportunity to attack a Somali-American congresswoman, as if Representative Omar would be so influential among violent white supremacists. The leadership of both the Democratic and Republican parties have increasingly taken aim at Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, the first elected representative to wear a hijab on the floor of the United States Congress. These attacks escalated after Representative Omar insinuated that the reason behind attacks against her was money from APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee. Numerous congressmen and women pressured her to apologize for employing anti-Semitism and insisted Omar, as well as Rashida Tlaib, the other Muslim congresswoman, affirm their support for Israel. Ultimately, Omar did apologize for employing, quote, anti-Semitic tropes. Donald Trump called on her to resign, and Democratic Party leaders, such as Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, went on to attack her in front of the very APAC lobbying group Omar had accused of undue influence. It is instructive that calls on the Democratic Party to sanction Representative Omar have drawn comparison to Steve King's support for white nationalism, comparing that with Omar's support for boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel over gross human human rights violations. Because I would argue Omar was wrong on a crucial point. It's not just about the Benjamins, as she suggested in her tweet. It's about white supremacy. The attacks on Omar, out of which this controversy grew, are only the latest in a series of aggressive moves 
by lobbying groups such as APAC, its supporters, as well as the Likud Party and the Israeli state against the movement of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Tellingly, the full weight of these attacks are especially seen against people of color. For example, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute recently rescinded a human rights award from Birmingham native Angela Davis over her support from BDS, reportedly over pressure from unnamed, quote, Jewish group, and fallout from the Women's March organizer Vanessa Rubel, who accused co-organizers Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez of anti-Semitism, led to a fracturing of that movement. The Palestinian American organizer of the Women's March, Linda Sarsour, has also endured numerous unending attacks and accusations of anti-Semitism, despite her work with Jewish groups and individuals, such as Jewish Voices for Peace. Tellingly, when the Omar controversy sparked, CNN did not have any African Americans with a nuanced view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to comment on it, because they had already fired him. Mark Lamont Hill lost his job at CNN, and pressure was put on Temple University in an attempt to get the tenured professor thrown out of academia after calling for a, quote, free Palestine from the river to the sea in a speech in front of the UN. It's instructive that some of the same American politicians leveling accusations of anti-Semitism against Omar ignore their own history or their party's history of racism and anti-Semitism. But it's even more instructive that the Israeli government, while leveling accusations of anti-Semitism against all attempts to protest Israeli apartheid, has been so comfortable to ally themselves with right-wing politicians who comfortably employ anti-Semitism. For example, while the Trump administration has empowered numerous anti-Semitic white supremacists such as Steve Bannon, he remains more popular in Israel than in the U.S. and among Israeli politicians such as Benjamin Netanyahu. Fascists such as Viktor Orban of Hungary are welcome guests of the Israeli state, while Christian Zionists accuse George Soros of bankrolling every political expression on the left with a conspiracy theory mirroring the protocols of the elders of Zion. While anti-Semitism certainly exists in numerous different communities and contexts, it's also telling that these, con- that these attacks seem so focused against those who identify as politically left, particularly against this BDS movement. This is despite the fact that anti-Semitic hate crimes, such as the mass murder in a Pittsburgh synagogue, are much more often rooted in the hateful right-wing ideology of white supremacy, as are the attacks against Muslim worshippers as was seen in New Zealand. This BDS strategy that was used to help overturn the white supremacist regime in South Africa has been employed against the current regime in Israel because of the numerous structures of apartheid systems employed by the Israeli government against Palestinian people. One fundamental structure of Israeli apartheid is the Bantustan system of the West Bank and particularly of Gaza. The access and administration of these Palestinian ethnic enclaves is controlled by the Israeli state, as is the legitimate use of state violence. The control of entry into and out of Gaza has kept the access of food so low, widespread famine has only barely been avoided. Airstrikes and attacks by the Israeli military has destroyed infrastructure such as power and sewage, and the embargo against the Palestinian Authority has prevented any ability to rebuild. The embargo has similarly controlled Palestinian access to health care and education in a way that often seems punitive. The land of Palestinians in the West Bank or even Israel proper has routinely been confiscated and homes and farms destroyed to build buildings or barriers supported by the Israeli state. 
The history of armed rebellion in Gaza and West Bank has been used to justify the deadly attacks on even unarmed civilians. While Jews around the world can exercise a right to claim Israeli citizenship, non-Jewish Palestinian whose parents and grandparents were refugees from the war for Israeli independence are forbidden from return. Hundreds of Palestinians have been killed by Israeli defense forces for demanding a right to return to their families, lands, and homes on the other side of the Gaza barrier. A recent UN report found that Israeli snipers were targeting medics, women, and children well away from the separation barrier despite clearly being identified as women, medics, and children. Recent legislation affirming Israel as an ethnic state and encouraging the construction of, quote, Jewish settlements has further codified this understanding of apartheid policy in the Israeli state. The dishonest argument equating Zionism with Judaism when these attacks of anti-Semitism are leveled are especially absurd when employed by right-wing Christian Zionists. A significant, powerful evangelical movement believes that the creation of a Jewish state in Israel is just a precursor to a messianic prophecy. Such Christian Zionists have disingenuously employed the attack of anti-Semitism not only against Ilhan Omar, but also against Jewish critics of Israel. Jewish people can be anti-Semitic, states a Christian Zionist in defense of the violence of the Israeli state against Palestinians. So how can we understand this alliance, which we see clearly in the Trump White House, between anti-Semites and neo-fascists with Zionists? Well, within the confines of the Holy Land, Israeli policy against Palestinian and Arabs is very much in line with the ideology of white supremacy, as much as the apartheid government in South Africa was or the Jim Crow South in the United States. It seems that the debate is not really about anti-Semitism. It's about delegitimizing the space for acceptable political debate around Israeli apartheid. In short, the bad faith accusations of anti-Semitism have been weaponized against a BDS movement modeled after the campaign that helped end apartheid in South Africa. The attacks will continue against BDS and the left, against Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and countless others rhetorically bludgeoned with this accusation without concern for the truth. While it's absolutely important to avoid anti-Semitic tropes of the past, it is also urgent that we recognize who and what really benefits from these bad faith attacks, white supremacy. Thanks again for joining me on The Knife at the Gunfight. The music that you heard was O Baltimore by Damon Blue, as well as A Man of Experience and Wisdom off of that Ethiopiques album. Don't forget to get your hands on that D. Watkins new release, We Speak for Ourselves, and definitely check out his autobiography, The Cook Up. Thanks again for joining us. Hope to see you again soon.